A warm hello and welcome to my two guests today, Jayshri Moodley and Dr. Hilda Grobler. Both are highly valued members of Conflict Dynamics Panel of Dispute Resolution Practitioners, and I'm delighted to have them with me to discuss their experiences as independent practitioners with workplace disciplinary issues and particularly workplace disciplinary hearings. You've both been practitioners in the field of employment relations for quite a number of years. You've had significant experience as independent chairpersons, and I'm very keen to hear some of your war stories, so to speak. Are there any observations or important lessons which you would like to share with employers, possibly also employees, from your experience as a disciplinary chairperson? Hilda, perhaps we can begin with you. Good morning and thank you. The purpose of taking disciplinary steps against an employee is to correct behavior rather than to punish the employee. However, some misconduct is so serious that you can't correct it and then a summary dismissal follows. How do employers go about this? They often subject managers to once-off training not knowing that once-off training merely scrapes the tip of the iceberg. Training must be much more than just exposing someone to some basic theory. Why do I say this? Disciplinary hearings can be a minefield. And we must also bear in mind that managers are subjected to this training and employees are not, so that when the two meet, we might have a problem. Let me give you an example. An employee is called to a disciplinary hearing, wants to avoid it, presents a medical certificate. Coincidentally, the employee is only ill on the day or the days scheduled for this disciplinary hearing. So what can we do? I'm going to give you an example from my own experience. I had lawyers on both sides, legal representatives for the employer and for the employee. And so when the medical certificate was presented, I said, no, I'm not accepting it. It's hearsay. Where's the medical practitioner? The medical practitioner must either come and give evidence or provide an affidavit. I'm going to proceed in the absence of the employee. And so the employee's lawyer, and I'm going to read to you what he put in writing, objecting to my decision. He said, shockingly, it is the first time in our history that someone who is medically not trained can challenge and dispute the medical notes. Well, this lawyer didn't know the law. The medical certificate is nothing more than hearsay. So it's very important that we take note of the fact that the medical certificate will not save or assist an employee to avoid that hearing. A second example, also from my experience, is in many instances, employees think that they can avoid that hearing by threatening or intimidating witnesses to ensure that they would not testify. And it goes beyond the whistleblowing. Well, there are different ways of overcoming this. If the employee knows who the witness is, you can still have an in-camera hearing where, depending on who represents the employee, 
the representative is present or in extreme cases, the employee and his representative are both excluded. And the simple way to do that is to take down the evidence and have it transcribed and then present the transcription to the employee and his representative. And they then formulate their questions based on that transcription. Cumbersome, but the employee who comes to testify is safe. And then the third example, and I think that's where I shall hand it to Jaisri after that, is the employee objects to a, a witness who is no longer employed or who has been transferred to another city or perhaps even overseas. We can deal with that as well. And we can do that by having it on a virtual platform or on a speakerphone. And when the employee persists that that's not fair, I refer them to the Labour Court, where the Labour Court said that a party might have convenient preferences, but such preferences may be disregarded because, and here's the key, they are merely self-serving. Now, this takes us to the point where we see the kind of issues that arise because managers are trained to deal with the application of the disciplinary code employees come with many unforeseen issues. So let's hear from Jaisri. I'm sure that she's had similar issues and experiences. Yes, indeed. Thanks so much, Hilda, for those very practical examples. Really useful to hear. Jaisri? Um, thank you, Vanessa. And yes, Hilda has raised very significant and important aspects um, uh, insofar as disciplinary hearings are concerned. But if you were to ask me what observations or important lessons stand out for me, um, you know, as a disciplinary chairperson, and even as, as a practitioner, what I feel is that, or what I've noticed, is that people underestimate the importance of the disciplinary hearing, both from an employer perspective and from an employee perspective. If I consult with an employee, especially where the employee has been dismissed subsequent to the disciplinary hearing, and I asked them, but why didn't you bring this evidence in? Or why didn't you defend yourself more strongly? Or why didn't you put this version during the disciplinary hearing? The answer is, well, I didn't think it was that serious. Or I didn't realize that this hearing was going to result in my dismissal. And it's the same thing where, from an employer perspective. Did you not realize how important this disciplinary hearing is? This is the procedure that is set out in your own disciplinary code. Why haven't you followed your own procedure when you were taking disciplinary action against this employee? So what I've noticed, and this is a general overview, I won't go into specifics because Hilda's given very good examples related to disciplinary hearings and incidents. But overall, I've noticed is people need to prepare properly for the disciplinary hearing, whether you're an employer representative or whether you're an employee representative, because when that disciplinary hearing results in a dismissal, that is the foundation from which every other process will then flow. So if the employer and the employee don't get it right or don't pay attention to what needs to be done, in as much as an arbitration is a de novo hearing, which means it's a new hearing, if the charges were badly drafted, you stuck with those charges up until arbitration or even up until the labor court. If the employee failed to put a version or pleaded incorrectly, the employee will be stuck with that and asked 
why are you now changing your version if he does something different at the subsequent arbitration hearing? So disciplinary hearings are important and employers and employees need to pay attention to what they what cases they are presenting at these disciplinary hearings. I think that for me is an important lesson. I've noticed it, like I said, as a representative of employers and employees, and even during the disciplinary hearing itself. Excellent. Yeah, I hear you, Jayashree. Um, Hilda, perhaps anything that you might have to add in terms of the, the employer representative's role? Most definitely. The biggest risk that an employer faces might not be the chairperson. Because when it goes to arbitration, uh, as Jayashree said, it is a de novo process. And we do then look at what happened. But the key person, as far as I'm concerned, is the initiator in a disciplinary hearing, or the, as they like to refer to the initiator as the prosecutor. I believe that initiators must be trained completely separately from chairpersons, because sitting as a chairperson, I often find that the initiators do not know how to prepare for a hearing. And this is probably the most serious weakness of an employer's case, because it means that the witnesses who are called to prove the misconduct are not properly prepared, they're not properly led, and so the evidence is simply not there. And when it comes to cross-examination, they lack the skill. The cross-examination is so poor that important versions are not challenged. The chairperson can only make a finding based on the evidence that is on record. And it's the, uh, the initiator's job to get that evidence on record. Because when it goes to arbitration, there's only one question before the arbitrator. And that is, was, if it's a dismissal or a sanction, was it given for a fair reason? No evidence. Where and how can you prove the fair reason? If it's not before the chairperson, it is not there, which means that the chairperson's hands are simply tied. And that, to me, is the biggest risk that an employer faces. And I agree with Jayshree. It's a question of preparation, and that preparation can only be based on knowledge, and that knowledge can only be based on proper training. So if the initiator is poor or incompetent, the whole process is severely compromised. And that compromised process, that result, goes to arbitration, labor court, and can end up in the constitutional court. It becomes an expensive lesson to the employer. Um, I don't know, Jayshree, if I've now just repeated what you've said, but that has been my experience. I sometimes want to tear my hair out when the initiator is completely lost. And of course, the same applies very often to the employee's representative who is a fellow employee, or in some instances, a shop steward. But at least if it's a shop steward, there is often some training provided by the union, because that's the union's job, not the employer's job. But still, you sit with what they put before you. And if they put nothing before you as the chairperson, that's it. You have nothing to work with. It's not your job to make the findings on behalf of the employer. You're independent and you focus only on that evidence or the documents that are put before you. And while we aren't talking about the documents, quite often the initiator thinks, if I hand up 10 statements, 
without calling the people who made the statements, that's enough. Well, how do we ask a question of a statement? We can't. And those statements are often translated by someone who does not have the language ability. And so it is not what the original person said in his statement when you sit with the English version of it. It's someone else's words, and you can't question the person who actually made the statement. Strong weaknesses that can cost an employer having to take the person back, either re-employ or reinstate. And if it's reinstatement, it's retrospective for the entire period that the person was without work. An expensive, time-consuming exercise that has a negative impact on the operations, day-to-day operations of the business. Uh, Just recently, I had to draft charges uh, for an employer client of mine. So they emailed me a summary of the incident and I drafted the charges. But when I was liaising with the managers about who was going to lead the evidence and how they were going to present the case before an external chairperson, I realized I do need to have a chat to them and I arranged a consultation with them the day before the hearing. When I go out to consult with the operations manager, the financials manager and the MD, it was a small business, but they were going to present the case and they were witnesses as well. The operations manager says, I have at least 10 statements from people on the factory floor, and that is the evidence I am going to present. And I had to explain to him exactly what you said, that this employee has a right to face their accuser and they need to challenge that evidence. So you cannot, so I told the operations manager that he cannot rely on the statements. He's got to give direct evidence about what he saw on that day. And he has to check with those people who gave him the statements, whether they would be comfortable to come and testify in the hearing. And it transpired that most of those employees who gave the statements, which was written in the operation manager's um, handwriting, and it was his words, obviously, just like you said, Hilda, Um, Most of them were reluctant to come and testify at the disciplinary hearing. And I had to advise the operations manager, you can't use those statements um, that you obtained. So the initiator's role is is very, very important. They need to understand how to present their case. The other thing that came out when we were preparing is we had to make a decision about who was going to be the initiator because the operations manager was a key witness. So we had to make a decision. And then... Even the person that was chosen as the initiator didn't understand how the process would unfold, that the witnesses would have to be led. This is what the chairperson is going to do. There's going to be cross-examination. And then you have to present the employer's case. He says, why is this so complicated? Everybody saw what happened. So presenting evidence in a disciplinary hearing, like Hilda said, is absolutely important. The initiator, the person who is presenting the case on behalf of the employer, needs to know what has to be presented and how it has to be presented. Um, In in the conflict dynamics training that we do, initiating and sharing of disciplinary hearings, there is a video that is shown um, as we are training of the initiator meeting with the witness and confirming the witness's version prior to the disciplinary hearing. And I have to say that is so enlightening for the people who attend the training because they don't realize that that is an important aspect 
of the preparation. So Hilda is absolutely correct. The initiator's role is crucial. They need to know what their case is and how to present the evidence. And the other thing that also gets told is, but we are not lawyers, we are just managers. How are we supposed to know how to present a case and how to cross-examine? And I tell them, the case must be presented in a chronological sequence. So just like how you tell a child a story, start from once upon a time. Start from the beginning of the incident, tell them in bite-sized pieces what happened so that you paint a picture for the chairperson, and then you get to the end of the story. But don't forget to leave out important things, because when you tell a child a story, the child will say, but what happened before that? So you need to be able to tell the story in such a way that a child would understand it. And as for cross-examination, what I tell everyone during my training sessions is, don't say you have no experience. If you are a parent, if you are in a relationship, you have a partner with your husband and wife, you are always defending your decisions. You are always challenging versions that are being presented to you. So you know how to cross-examine. Ultimately, that is the skill that you need. So initiators play a very important role. They need to be trained. They need to know how to present their case. But like Hilda said, we mustn't forget about the employees. And I have been in companies where the either the employee relations director or the HR director or managers have the foresight to include the shop stewards in that training to say that they also need to know how to present evidence, what is involved in a disciplinary hearing. And the training that ensues from that is so it's so productive because you get the different viewpoints and you, the trainer, you're facilitating this discussion that's happening in your training session because you've included the employee representatives. So yes, <laughs> preparing and training the people who present the cases is absolutely important. Thank you, Vanessa. Thanks so much, Jayashree um, and Hilda. Such interesting and relevant and valuable snippets of experiences there that you've raised. In closing our discussion, I'd like to ask each of you of all that you have experienced in terms of working in chairing or representing employers in disciplinary hearings over many years, what would your top tip be for employers when it comes to managing serious disciplinary matters in the workplace? Well, I think the important thing to bear in mind here is if it's serious, it's probably dismissible. So if it is dismissible, both the chairperson and the initiator must have it in the forefront of their minds that they are holding the continued employment of others in their hands. And therefore, they must know what they are doing. They must be ready for the hearing. And because, and we've seen this specifically over the last year or so, that there have been many shifts in the law, and it's on a fairly regular basis, which means that they well, they must be upskilled. They must know what the latest position is. And therefore, my top tip would be, you're sitting in a very important situation or position, and therefore, you must be ready for it. And you can only be ready for it if you undergo refresher training on a regular basis to know what the law now says and what is expected of you. And if you feel that it is beyond you, then I would advise employers to appoint a qualified and experienced external chairperson, especially if the matter might be complex. 
Thanks so much, Hilda. Jayashree, what would your top tip be? Thank you, Vanessa. I think my top tip would be that there needs to be an understanding in the workplace that managing discipline is multifaceted. And it's not just limited to initiating and sharing disciplinary hearings, and it is certainly not limited to an HR function. Managing discipline in the workplace is a manager's function. So employers need to train their managers on how to manage discipline in the workplace, and they need to teach or train their managers what is progressive discipline? How do I issue a written warning? How do I issue a final written warning? How do I deal with suspension of an employee whilst I'm investigating or pending a disciplinary hearing? And what is performance and how do I deal with performance? Because ultimately, when you're getting to a disciplinary hearing that's going to result in dismissal, you are also going to be looking at the employee's disciplinary record. You're going to see what happened in the past or how was this employee managed? And the person who manages that employee in the workplace is the manager. So there has to be an understanding that managers need to be properly trained because people have a misconception to think, okay, we can't dismiss this person for, it's his first offense. He doesn't have a first written warning or a second written warning or even a final written warning. But some types of misconduct are so serious that they warrant dismissal in the first instance, for example, um, a sexual harassment case may warrant a dismissal. Anything involving dishonesty warrants dismissal in the first instance. And if the manager doesn't understand that and doesn't understand this is how progressive discipline works, this is not a misconduct issue. It is actually a performance issue. They are not going to be able to present the case properly. So training has to be done for managers so that they understand this in the build up to a dismissal case or when managing their employees in the workplace. So it's an important function. And I see that in some workplaces, managing discipline or managing their subordinates is now being written into the KPAs of managers because they most managers are reluctant to initiate in a disciplinary hearing. I've even had an experience where a manager didn't want to hand the notice of the hearing to the employee, which resulted in the hearing being prejudiced because the employee got short notice of the hearing. So managers, the top tip for employers is train your managers on how to manage discipline in the workplace and move away from the thinking that managing discipline and managing employees is purely an HR function because it is a managerial function. Thank you, Vanessa. Thanks so much, Jayashree. And thank you to Hilda. Such excellent um, tips that I think you've brought up here. Such practical and relevant day-to-day -day issues for all managers. 